0: don't wait visit sonobello.com slash save sonobello.com slash save sonobello.com slash save
2: welcome to mission evolution radio show with guilda wiaka Welcome. I'm so glad you can join us on Mission Evolution, where we bring the latest knowledge from today's leading experts to support your evolutionary process. I'm your host, Guadalupeca. This hour, we'll explore modern medicine and ancient ways. In our search for the latest, greatest drugs and modern scientific solutions, are we overlooking the value of indigenous wisdom? What magic could happen if we were to bridge the cultural divide and incorporate ancient ways into our modern approaches to not only health care, but life in general? With us this hour to share her experience being a medical doctor treating Navajo patients is Dr. Erica Elliott. Dr. Elliott is the author of Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert, My Life Among the Navajo People. She currently has a busy medical practice in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Before becoming a doctor, Erica lived in various cultures around the world. She's been an outward-bound instructor, a wilderness guide, and a leader of an all-women's expedition to Denali in Alaska. Her website, ericaelliotmd.com. Erica, thanks for joining us on Mission Evolution. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So becoming a medical doctor is no small undertaking. What prompted you to do so?
3: Well, it took me many years to figure out that was my destiny. And I took many journeys in interesting places, trying to find what what was the meaning in my life? Why was I here? What was my purpose? And so I started out as a school teacher on the Navajo reservation. And I realized teaching school that I love to teach. So that was a piece of the puzzle that I needed to put together I needed all the pieces of the puzzle to figure out what I was supposed to be doing with my life. And So so
2: let me interrupt you. Let me get this straight. You uh, were a teacher on the Navajo Reservation before you became a medical doctor?
3: Oh, yes. I became a medical doctor much later. I had a very full life before I became a medical doctor, which is really fortunate because once you get on the path of medicine, that is all-consuming. It's very hard to uh, have other uh, areas that you delve into. And so I could learn deeply about life um, from the many experiences I had, including teaching the Navajo children.
2: So how did, how did you end up teaching um, at a boarding school on the reservation? How'd that come about?
3: Well, when I graduated from Antioch College, I, I was originally an art major, and then I realized, my gosh, it would be very hard to make a living being an artist. So I switched to education at the last minute, got my teaching certificate, looked in the trade journals, and nothing really caught my attention until I saw that there was an opening in a very remote part of the U.S. that I had never been to, the Southwest. And they were looking for a fourth grade boarding school teacher there. And I, something inside me said, you must do this. This is what you're supposed to do, even though it didn't make much sense. Or my friend said, why are you doing a crazy thing like that? And I say, I don't know, but I know this is what I need to do. So I drove out there. And at first it, I thought I'd made a big mistake. It just looked like a big desert and the town was like stuck in a bygone era And the Navajo children didn't really communicate with me. And um, But once I started to learn their language, everything changed dramatically for me. The kids warmed up to me. They uh, wanted to learn English really badly because they wanted to tell me about their life. And these boarding school children asked me to check them out on the weekends, and they'd take me to very remote homes where their families lived, and no English was spoken. So I had to learn Navajo pretty quickly. And it's one of the hardest languages in the world. It was used by the code talkers in World War II, and it was the only code that was never broken. And it wasn't even a code. It was just their language, which is almost impossible to learn.
2: (laughs) It sounds like it. So which reservation was it?
3: The Navajo Reservation in uh, Arizona, in the southwest, okay. a very remote part of the southwest.
2: Does it does it have a name or just?
3: I, the town was called Chinle. It was near one of the most beautiful places on earth called Canyon de Che. So how long were you there? I was teaching school for two years, and then I decided I wanted to really take a deep dive and really perfect my Navajo language. And I live with a family that spoke no English. I became a sheep herder. I I took care of 594 sheep and goats and uh, on horseback. And I learned how to butcher and shear sheep and card the wool and spin it and dye it with the plants and weave rugs. And I learned all about, customs that were the same as they were 100 years ago with this family that uh, really lived really like they were in the 1800s. Were you you living with this family while you were teaching? No, I left teaching in order to uh, really go deep into Navajo culture while I was a sheep herder. And um, I was there for three months. And then I wanted to know more about indigenous people. I was totally, deeply attracted to indigenous people. So I decided to join the Peace Corps and work with indigenous people in the Andes in South America and those were also people who just spoke Quechua, so that was another language challenge. I had to—I was already fluent in Spanish because I—I've I, lived in many places in my life growing up, and so I spoke fluent Spanish. But then I had to, to learn Quechua, the language of the Inca descendants. And did uh, you
2: find did you find similarities between the Navajo and the uh, Inca? Um. Yeah, well, yes, Uh, some some
3: similarities in that they were uh, used plant-based medicine, and they believed that illness was caused by being out of harmony with one's environment, and they'd have ceremonies, both cultures, to get you back into harmony, which the Navajos called rujan, which means uh, walk in beauty, beauty not having anything to do with cosmetic beauty, but beauty meaning tranquility harmony peace um, connected with your family your clan your environment and your world
2: so from from my history my my original teacher told me that um if one member of the tribe they believed if and he was uh, Lakota if they believed if one member of the tribe was ill everyone was ill. The, the imbalance in one person was indicative of an imbalance overall. Was that a common belief among the people yes, you were working with the Navajo? Po- totally. Uh,
3: it, the Navajo culture, the traditional Navajo culture, one, I, I have to clarify, I was there 50 years ago. It was very traditional then. People wore traditional clothing. Many didn't speak English. It's very different now. But um, Yes, if one person was sick, then the whole their whole community needed to get back into balance, because unlike white people, uh, the community is everything, your clan, your family, your your community is of more importance than you as an individual.
2: Did um, You said you were there 50 years ago. Um, have you had some associations since then? And as they've changed and become more modernized, do you see that some of this has been lost? Very much so. It's sort of tragic. And what's even more tragic
3: is during the pandemic, many of the elders, the medicine men, the medicine women, died. And they were the ones who passed down the language, the customs, the ceremonies, And so it was a horrendous loss. So what some Navajo activists did is they amped up um, a school, a program in the local Navajo college to help people who wanted to become medicine men and women, and uh, because they're desperate not to lose their culture.
2: Who did they have teach these classes? Um, I mean, I know it. It's a little, that, that would be a little different approach than what the original apprenticeship was. Yeah,
3: yes, exactly. Um, they learn from the remaining medicine men who've offered to uh, apprentice these young men and women who want to be medicine people.
2: Well, I sure hope it works because we don't want to lose what they've gathered all, over all the years, do we?
3: No, no that's for sure. It's so valuable
2: what they have to teach us is so valuable. Now, are their medicine men also synonymous for shaman? They don't call themselves
3: shamans, but... Uh, yeah, that's I, a Western term for sure. But. Western mm-hmm. term, people would call them shamans, mm-hmm. shamans but they call themselves Khatkali, which means medicine men
2: or women. Women, right, right. And um, was there a good turnout for, for the studies? Yes
3: amazingly so. I think the whole reservation realizes that this is so critical turning point in uh, history that they, they have to actively pursue uh, the things that they're on the verge of losing.
2: Yeah, very, very true. So, and that, that school is still going now? That started after the pandemic? Yes, going strong. Fantastic. And where is the school?
3: It's in many farms in um, Arizona.
2: Nice, nice. Well, it's time for us to take a little pause. Um, And so we're going to have a commercial break, after which Dr. Elliot and I will return. So don't go away. This is Mission Evolution. For more information or to listen to past archived episodes, you can always visit our website, www.missionevolution.org. Hello again, this is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. We're dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness. With us this, this hour, discussing her life among the Navajo is Dr. Erica Elliott. Her website, ericaelliottmd.com. Erica, we were getting into and a very fascinating topic of the, the um, measures that are being taken to preserve the Navajo ancient wisdom due to COVID taking out a lot of their elders. Do you know if this is going on anywhere else in any other tribes? no
3: i don't know but another thing that's happening is not just training new medicine men but also there's a big awakening that part of the reason why the death toll was so high on the navajo reservation it it was frighteningly high is because of the poor nutrition and um that people are because they're so poor They, uh, the only stores that are around there are junk food stores. It's really horrible. And they're so, those stores sell such unhealthy foods. And people have to drive miles and miles and miles to find decent food. And many of them can't afford to do that. And so there's a big movement now. So this is the blessing side of this nightmare is there's this profound realization that something has to change with the health of the Navajo people and so there are quite a few millennials who are trying to reestablish the the agricultural practices of the Navajos before they were um, colonized and it's terribly exciting they call it regenerative farming because it's actually restoring the land as well as growing their own food. And and they're using pretty advanced technology. And there's such enthusiasm for this because of the profound awakening during the pandemic of how what you eat profoundly affects your health. There's no getting around it. No pill can make up for that. There's no lifestyle pill. (laughs) You have to really get real about all this. And and that's what's happening.
2: Isn't that a a silver lining to the the very dark cloud of of the COVID pandemic? Yes, yes. uh, That people are rallying and taking the steps they need that needed to be taken a while ago, but now it becomes obvious. Let's change gears a little bit. You've spent a lot of your time out of doors. And when you were living on the Navajo Reservation, was How did the land impact you there? Was it different than other places you've been? Oh. If so, how?
3: Oh. I, I'm going to wax poetic. It, it so profoundly affected me. These beautiful rock formations and, um, and the air was so pristine um, and electrifying, that I, I could feel almost the spirits in the land. I, I couldn't get enough of it. And um, I I spent so much time exploring all these fabulous uh, rock formations and canyons and so forth. And one time I went by myself so I could really meditate and let let the ambience sink way deep inside me. I went to a remote place in Utah where there was no habitation for miles and miles. And I, I drove my four-wheel drive into uh, deep into the wilderness. There wasn't a soul around. And I, I just um, scampered among those gorgeous rock formations, pinnacles, towers, buttes, and just loved every minute. And then nighttime came and I got my sleeping bag and laid my pad and sleeping bag on a rock. And I fell asleep. It was a full moon. And I dreamed that I was in a corral helping one of my students at their family home, um, get, take out the billy goats because they weren't supposed to mate. It was the wrong time for mating. And in my dream, the smell of the billy goat was so strong. They're called pheromones. They're hormones that they secrete when they want to mate. They they were so strong that I almost felt like this wasn't a dream. And then I heard a sniffing sound and it, it wasn't a dream. It was the smell of a mountain lion sniffing me. And so... I I was so petrified, I didn't move, which is the right thing to do when you're confronting a mountain lion, because they like things that move. And that's probably because I was paralyzed with fear. That's probably why he didn't rip me apart and eat me. And so uh, by the time I opened my eyes, it was morning and, and he was long gone. But as I stuffed my sleeping bag in the sack, this big whiff of pheromones that sent, but I thought it was the billy goat in my dream, but it was actually the male mountain lion who sniffed me. And I told my Navajo teacher aide, and she took me to her grandmother's deep in the canyon and told the grandmother the story. And the grandmother's made a prophecy, which actually every word of it came true later in my life. And fortunately, I'll tell you the prophecy in a second, but fortunately, I I wrote it in my diary, so I'd never forget what she said. And she said, "So,
2: so the um, the prompting to take you was the power animal, um, or perceiving the um, cougar as a power animal. Yes. That's right.
3: That's what she wow. said. She said he's your spirit guide and came to you purposely to you to give you his power, courage, and perseverance, which you will need on." Your journey in life because you will face some life-threatening uh, challenges and that if you survive, and I underline that in my diary, if you survive, you will have powerful medicine to bring to the people. And that, that's what happened. And fortunately, I documented it so I could check and see if that's really what she said.
2: That's amazing. Just amazing. So now, where did this experience fall within your um, becoming a doctor? Um,
3: Okay. So what my journey was like, my 10-year journey searching for purpose, was looking for the things that really uh, lit my fire. And so nature lit my fire, teaching lit my fire, and teaching with love lit my fire, and because I saw that when when I treated my Navajo students with love, the whole thing changed. As a fourth graders, they did not speak English. I said, "How, how is that possible? They reached the fourth grade, and they can't speak English, probably because the white teachers didn't really care about them, and they were giving them Dick and Jane books that meant nothing. So when, they, when I treated them with love, because I truly fell in love with them, once I could speak Navajo, my God, we had a love affair. And um, they, they came alive, they, they broke all those stereotypes white people have of Indians and stuff. And um, they learned like a house on fire. And by the end of the year, they, they not only could speak English very well, three of them won a speech contest, a speech contest when, when they, that was nine months after not being able to put a sentence together. And so it showed me that whatever I did, whatever my purpose, my ultimate purpose in life, it had to include teaching, empowering, and it had to be delivered with love. And so I so everything I I, along the 10 year journey, finally put the puzzle together that I needed to be in medicine.
2: But I how 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 old were you when you decided to go into medical school?
3: I was the oldest student in my class and I was 31 years old as a freshman medical student. And uh, I, I Got in against all odds. I had everything against me. My age in those days, that was considered old. <laughs> that seems ridiculous now, but that's the truth. And my gender why? They said it was harder for women in those days. It's not like that anymore. And I had no money because I was in the Peace Corps. And so, uh, you know, I made $120 a month in the Peace Corps. So I, I had no savings and I had a liberal arts background. And so, so anyway, I got in against all odds and the st- stories around that are hilarious. And um, because I didn't know the whole culture of the pre-med culture and how you're supposed to be really obsequious and, and you know bow down to authority and everything. So I did everything wrong, but that's, that attracted medical st- uh, school somehow because I was different. And they wanted a small percentage of their students to be out of the box. And so I I fit that that description.
2: You you knew how to do out of the box.
3: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I was very out of the box because my classmates went from school to school to school to school. They they had no real life experience. And uh, so they were more likely to believe everything they were told. I was a critical thinker and always have been. And that's why mainstream medicine I only lasted 10 years on that path because I felt like a pill dispenser and this was not what I was looking for for 10 years to be a pill dispenser so I had a disaster just like the grandmother predicted that forced me off the golden path and onto my true true path in life where I was practicing in alignment with my soul with what I knew was right and uh it it was so deeply meaningful and fulfilling that I never want to retire. Why would I? I'm doing <laughs> well, really what I absolutely we're go- adore.
2: We're gonna have to get into the initiatory disaster on the other <laughs> side on the other side of a commercial break. Dr. Elliot and I will return to our discussion shortly. So you stay right there. This is Mission Evolution for more information or to listen to past archived episodes visit www.missionevolution.org. Back. This is Mission Evolution, missionevolution.org. Our guest this hour is Dr. Erica Elliott. We're speaking about bringing, bridging the cultural divide. Her website, Erica Elliott dot. excuse me, Erica Elliott MD.com. Erica, we were going to get into your initiatory disaster. Tell us what happened.
3: Okay. So I I need to give the backstory right from the start. I knew some things weren't right that I was learning, but nobody spoke up and asked. And I did. I, 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 we learned that, you know, margarine was good good for us back in that era. And I I knew that was wrong. And, but when I spoke up because I am a critical thinker and I asked why, how, how, how do you know this is helpful? And uh, uh, why isn't butter acceptable when it's been used throughout history? And um, but my critical thinking was not welcome. So I had to learn how to live with cognitive dissonance in medical school. I learned how to be quiet and just accept what they said. And but in order to do that, I had to put my soul in a little box and put it away in order to excel because i'm competitive also i'm an athlete and so i like to do well but i paid a huge price for doing well and i sort of lost my soul's way and i I did what i'm supposed to do and did a really good job but i knew a little voice said this isn't the right path for you this isn't what you've been looking for your whole life and um, it was very pharmaceutical oriented very drug oriented. And, um, and there wasn't really time to spend time and get to know the patient and do a proper history. It it was all about treating symptoms. It wasn't the underlying cause. And I remembered what the Navajos, their word for white doctors, I never forgot that, which means he who gives out pills. Now compare that with a medicine man. (laughs) And, you know, but, but anyway, so I kept doing that and I kept that little voice got louder and louder. This isn't right. This isn't right what you're doing. This is not right. And finally, it took a disaster to wake me up. And that's when I got injured by toxic chemicals in the clinic that I was working in. They used a pesticide called Dursban, which is now banned for indoor use. The active ingredient is chlorpyrifos and it's known to cause brain damage in children, but it, it affected my brain terribly and my liver. And, um, and then they used all, all these other nasty chemicals in the building like um, glutaraldehyde to disinfect the instruments without proper ventilation. It was a new building. It was outgassing hundreds of toxic chemicals. They used air fresheners in the bathroom. It, 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 and there was no uh, operable windows it it was ultimately designated a quote sick building and many so, people so what how did
2: that how did that impact you personally and how did your life change as a result
3: so i was so sickened by it and here i was a world class athlete and i could barely get out of bed and i had rashes all over my body and i had crippling headaches. And I couldn't think straight. I, I was so muddled all the time. I had a bad short term memory. I'd get confused. And um, somehow I, I continued practicing medicine. I didn't. I went to all these doctors. They said it, I was stressed. That, that's such a cop out. When doctors say that, it, it means they don't have a clue. I would like it if they were just honest and say, I've never seen this before. I don't have a clue what's wrong with you. And saying, instead of saying it's stress and you know, maybe talk to a therapist, you're a single mother, that's really hard job. I said, you know what? Stress doesn't make you covered with rashes and fall down and bump into doors and um, get muddled in the head. And so, so anyway, I finally uh, found a doctor trained in environmental medicine and he said, you've got chemical poisoning. You need to get out of that building and it might take you years to recover. Well, it, I left mainstream medicine and I was so debilitated. I didn't think, I didn't think I'd ever be able to practice medicine again. And, and then these environmental doctors laid out a path for me, how to get well and rehabilitate my brain and so forth. And it was totally life-changing. I learned things we'd never learned in med school because it was all pill-oriented. I learned how to really help people and myself get well. And pretty soon, out of nowhere, all these people started coming to my door at my home because I was at home because I become so sensitive to chemicals, I couldn't work out in the world. And they come to my home. And they'd ask for help because they had similar problems. And pretty soon, within two years, I had patients coming from all over the country and Mm. even Germany and Switzerland because they had problems that doctors didn't know what to do with and I could help them. And so I got so much pleasure out of it.
2: So how did you go from there to going back to the reservation and treating the Navajo?
3: I, I was actually... Went to the I went treated Navajos um, right after graduating from my residency program, and because the government paid for my education, I had I had no money. They two years of a scholarship and then two years of the National Health Service Corps uh, paying for my education. So to pay them back, I I chose to serve Navajos because I was supposed to serve in an underserved area. So it was Navajos and Hispanic ranchers and eccentric uh, artists who were living in the middle of nowhere. And it it was really interesting. I mean, I, I was practicing like a mainstream doctor because that's all I knew. And they, they threw me into situations that were way over my head. I was trained as a family doctor, but I was doing ER medicine. And I, for much of the time, I was the only doctor for a busy, busy uh, little hospital and um, outpatient clinic. So I, I was worked to death, but my- where, 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 was, where was this clinic? It's in Cuba, New Mexico, in a very remote place. And okay, so, so it's,
2: it's different than the reservation you were on before?
3: Yes, but it's right near another edge of the reservation. So they used to come all the way from it's called Crown Point, the Navajo people, to the clinic to see me because I spoke Navajo.
2: Okay, and And did you see any of the same people that you had made an association with when you were teaching?
3: No, because they lived at another part of the reservation. So this was a whole different group of Navajos.
2: It's a whole different experience, really. A whole
3: different experience. But here's what I did is when I thought somebody had um, an illness that I couldn't help, I couldn't help them with, I would send them to a medicine man to have a ceremony. And and sometimes that would do the trick. And so it was a mixture of Western medicine and uh, traditional Navajo medicine.
2: So tell us about the ceremonies. How do you find out about them? What goes on there?
3: Because when I was a school teacher and the children took me to their homes on the weekends. Uh, They invited me to participate in ceremonies that white people aren't allowed to go to. They totally adopted me on the reservation. So I saw things that white people never seen before. And um, so there's two types of ceremonies. One is traditional that they've been doing for hundreds of years with medicine men. And the other is uh, a, treating modality that was borrowed from the Plains Indians. It's the peyote ceremonies. They call it the Native American church. I saw so many miracles <laughs> that uh, for, for years, I didn't talk about it because I, I know white people wouldn't believe it because they had never experienced anything like that. And so I, I would be telling them things that were way beyond their ability to, to process or accept. And so But I I documented everything in my diary, so I would never forget what I
2: saw. Did you see healing miracles like people that had um, a disease being healed by these ceremonies? Oh, absolutely. And I I had a healing
3: ceremony for myself because I developed a very hard lump under my chin. And... um, and it did, it would get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I tried to ignore it back in those days and it just got bigger and very hard, non-tender. So I didn't know anything about medicine. My teacher aide said, um, uh, you know you should get that checked and so i so did so this
2: this was let me let me clarify this was before, when you were with them before you went to medical school this
3: is 50 years ago
2: yeah okay before. and then that, and, that, and you were included in ceremonies then and you had this healing ceremony
3: yes exactly so i went to a mainstream doctor off the reservation 2 hours away and he said it looks like lymphoma looks like cancer we'll have to do a biopsy and i i i was <laughs> I, I was afraid of doctors and I didn't like hospitals. And so uh, who would guess that I'd end up being a doctor? So I fled there and I, I told my teacher aide that, you know, does, does she know any ceremonies? And she talk, directed me to different medicine men. And they all said, you know, it wasn't their area of expertise. But then the Navajo family that, quote, adopted me, they were members of the Native American church. They said they'd like to give me a gift of a peyote ceremony, but it's so expensive because they have to butcher a sheep and pay the road. It's called a road man, not a medicine man when it's with the peyote. And um, so they shared it with another family I had a sick baby. And um, I had to dress totally in the Navajo traditional outfit. White, white man's clothes weren't allowed in there. And, um, and so
2: well th- we're going to have to i'm afraid have a cliffhanger here okay. and it's a cliffhanger because i really want to hear what happened and i'm sure our audience does as well however it is time for a commercial break dr Elliot and i will be back shortly to continue this interesting discussion so don't go away this is mission evolution for more information or to listen to past archive episodes visit www.missionevolution.org Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, bringing gifted people of service to the world. This hour, we're sharing thoughts with Dr. Erica Elliott. Her website, EricaElliottMD.com. So Erica, you were just about to tell us about the healing ceremony that you went to, um, that you shared with a sick baby, um, and it was a peyote ceremony. Would you mind continuing with that discussion?
3: Sure. Well, the peyote went around in three different forms, the button and the tea and the powder. And um, you get into a totally altered state, but it's very, it's it's not for recreation. It's very much for spiritual purposes and for healing. And um, so I got focused on the baby the whole time with the chanting and the prayers And I I sort of forgot that the ceremony was also for me. And after the ceremony was over, it's an all night prayer and singing. We went into the cinder block house next door to have our breakfast. And we were sitting on the floor with a sheet, with the mutton stew and fry bread. And everybody started looking at me and I didn't know what they were looking at, why they were looking at me. I started feeling really uncomfortable. And then suddenly I realized and my hand touched and there was no mask there. It had disappeared. And to this day, I, I sometimes go like this because I can just, even after 50 years, I go like this because I can hardly believe it went away. And there were countless miracles. Another countless miracle was when I was recently arrived on the reservation, this family that adopted me, once I started learning Navajo, all these doors opened to me, unbelievable. And um, so when I was invited to my very first peyote ceremony, I I didn't speak Navajo. And when the sacred tobacco went around where you pray, when it was passed to me, my my Navajo mother said, just in English, just pass it on. And I didn't pass it on and I started praying in Navajo. And as I was praying, I thought, oh my God, I, I'm praying in Navajo. I, I must be really hallucinating or something. This, this peyote must be incredibly strong because it's like more real than real life. And so then I passed it on and everybody was looking at me. And then when the sacred drum where you sing was passed to me, she, the mother, Navajo mother said again, just pass it on. And I didn't. And I started singing, Hey, nay, young, hey, hey, no. I'd never heard that song before. How could I sing it? And so I just thought the whole thing was a big hallucination, that it was just all in my imagination. So when the ceremony was over and we were back in that, you know, having breakfast in the cinder block house on the floor, and the, Navajo, the roadman started talking to me in Navajo. the the peyote had long ago worn off and I I had no idea what he was saying and and so I said uh excuse me um you know I I don't really speak Navajo and everybody burst out laughing and he said you talked up a storm last
0: night
2: (laughs) (laughs) the morning after the night before so do you have an explanation as to how or why these ceremonies work you know I I had no explanation. That's why
3: I didn't talk about them to anybody. And um, but some physicists have said that you know there's no the past and the future and the present are all one, and they say that um, I was just entering into another quote universe. Where that was accessible, I, I don't really know to tell you the truth. I, I can make something up, and
2: but <laughs> well, well, you mentioned magic in the title of your book, so tell us about the magic. Well, the magic is the mir- are the miracles,
3: and and the whole place was magical to me. That the rocks, the people, the ceremonies, the animals—it it was all. I was in a state of wonder the whole time. And the my white colleagues who are much older than me in their fifties and waiting to retire, they didn't know why I was so excited about being there. They were bored to death. They didn't like the children and they're waiting to retire. So they couldn't really understand why I was ecstatic the whole time I was there. It was so, so meaningful.
2: So... Fast forward to now, do you see any value in incorporating the ancient knowledge into modern medicine? And if so, how can we do that?
3: Well, I do it indirectly. I know that if they're not in harmony with themselves and their friends and their family, that they're they're it's going to promote disease. So certain concepts have stayed with me. And I I do plant-based medicine. I mean, I use pharmaceuticals when I have to, but I always use plant-based medicine first.
2: And um, by, by plant-based medicine, do you mean herbs? herbs. And where, where did you learn? I learned from
3: the Navajo grandmother when I was herding sheep. She taught me all the herbs. She was ancient and she was totally in touch with her culture and the deep wisdom that was passed
2: on to her. What a wonderful opportunity. And that's the opportunity that we're now losing because of COVID, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, that's so sad. That's so sad. Hey, I understand (laughs) that that, um, uh, November 9th is a special date for you. Yes. What's Um, happening?
3: That's my self published book, Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert My Life Among the Navajo People. I self published because I'm a busy physician, did not have time to find an agent and all that stuff. So I said, I'm just going to self publish. Well, Shockingly, the book did really well. It it, word of mouth went all over the place. Even people found it in Australia and the UK. It was, and so a publishing company called Baron Company slash Inner Traditions reached out to me and said, "We'd like to republish your book." And so the republished book, the new version, is coming out November 9th It's very exciting.
2: Well, congratulations, and I'm sure it can be found any place books are sold, right? Yes. So after you left the reservation, um, did you ever return? Yes, I, I've, re-
3: I've returned. Um, the most recent time was um, before the pandemic, but it, 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 some parts made me very sad because um, those strong, lean people that I lived with and um, learned from you know, many had become heavy and they just were, the young people were on their their phones all the time and and they're eating bad food and some of them couldn't speak their language anymore. So there are parts that were terribly sad and there are parts that were terribly exciting because, because there was a movement away from all that stuff as well. And there were some incredible Navajo artists and musicians and poets and trying to keep their culture alive, but in a new form.
2: And isn't that what we need now? Uh, yes. We can't stick with the old ways because yeah. they're no longer supported. And we can't stick with the ways that we've been doing because yes. clearly that's not being supported. So, how right. about blending cultures and coming up with a new way? Yes. That's, you know, oh, that's wonderful. So, Dr. Elliot, what is your mission?
3: My mission is to empower my patients to inform them and to treat them with loving kindness and empathy and compassion and real tools to help them get well, really address the underlying problems and not just treat their symptoms. So it's a whole experience when patients come to me, it's not just in and out here you have asthma here, take this, it's not like that at all. My patients are some of the most empowered people, so empowered that some some doctors are scared of them because they know so much and they're critical thinkers. And they say, why do I need a CAT scan? That's a lot of radiation. Do I really need a CAT scan? And will that change anything we do? Instead of being like sheep and doing whatever the mainstream doctor tells them to do, they question Is this going to benefit me? What's the risk-benefit ratio? I mean, these are amazing uh, patients that I have. It's so exciting to see that they really uh, now can often solve their own medical mysteries because I've taught them how to be a good detective,
2: how to figure things out. The patients of tomorrow. And isn't that what the indigenous people do is they treat every illness like a um, mystery to be solved and look at all the elements.
3: Yes, that's right.
2: Amazing. We're just about out of time. In closing, what would you like to share with Mission Evolution's worldwide audience? Uh, I, I would like all of you
3: to be empowered, learn about yourself and take a deep dive and be a critical thinker, ask questions and, um, Remember that love is terribly important. It's not just a cliche. It's terribly important that when you interact with people, you do it with loving kindness.
2: That's that's a beautiful thought because we so often tend to overlook that, don't we? That love really is the answer. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Yes. (laughs) Unfortunately, we are out of time, Dr. Elliot. Thank you so so much for coming on the show and sharing your life with us. Thank you. I love being here with you. It's been a real pleasure. Our guest this hour has been Dr. Erica Elliott, the author of Medicine and Miracles in the High Desert, My Life Among the Navajo People. Her website, ericaelliotmd.com. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka. For more information or to listen to past archived episodes, visit www.missionevolution.org. And Dr. Erica's book will be coming out on the 9th, or if you're hearing this after the 9th, it's out there. Um, and I'm sure it's available any place fine books are sold. So please join us next time as the mission continues, bringing information, resources, and support to our evolving world.